This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast brought to you by MetPro, the world-renowned concierge nutrition, fitness, and performance company. Uh, listeners may remember that just a couple weeks ago, I interviewed MetPro's founder, Angelo Poli, to talk all about the company and what it does and how MetPro's experts analyze your metabolism to provide an individualized approach to diet and training to help you lose weight, fuel yourself for your training and racing goals, and just be a better athlete. So what does that mean? Uh, You can maximize your power to weight ratio as a cyclist. You can also identify the best nutrition and fueling strategies for those big long rides and your races. How does it work? MetPro's team, uh, they sit with you, they create an individualized metabolic profile, and then they basically assess your lifestyle, your current diet, and where your metabolism is, and they provide you a roadmap for how to eat and how to train. And something that we don't think about is that our metabolism is always uh, changing, it's always adapting. If we increase our activity, our our metabolism changes. If we change our diet, it does that. And so by working with one of MetPro's experts, we're able to make these tweaks and changes to help us lose weight and to fuel ourselves for our ambitions. Uh, right now, VeloNews listeners receive a complimentary metabolic profile assessment and a 30-minute consultation with a MetPro expert. Uh, check it out, metpro.co forward slash Velo. Again, it's metpro.co forward slash Velo, uh, thanks so much to MetPro for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. We are back. We are back with the Velo News podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you a little bit later in the week because uh, we had the Labor Day holiday this week. We have a great episode up for you today, a very Vuelta España-centric episode. We're going to hear from Andrew Hood on the ground in Poe after the Stage 10 time trial. Then we're going to catch up with some Americans at the Vuelta, as uh, if you've been reading fellownews.com, you know that this Vuelta is a Vuelta of American riders. I feel like was seven, eight, nine, ten, fifty. 100 American riders at the Welta this year. And we're going to hear from two of them, uh, Ben King and Kiel Reinen, talking about uh, how this Welta is going along. Ben is also going to give us uh, just a little update on his racing career after those big Welta stage wins last year and the impact that those have had on his racing campaign so far in 2019. Uh, but uh, <laughs> before, before we get that, uh, we got to catch up with Andrew Hood. Andy, you are on the ground in Poe. And look, we know Poe very well. It's in southern France. It's a town that the Tour de France comes to uh, quite often. <laughs> Andy, what's your what's your takes on Poe? Just as a place. Like, what do you, uh, what are your memories? What do you think of old Poe? Yeah, we love Poe. You know, it's, it's the, the duck capital of, uh, of this area. A lot of... Uh, Confit Cana, Magret de Cana. Uh, a lot of a lot of history has happened in this town, both racing during the tour, and we've also had some of the more famous press conferences. Infamous press conferences have happened coincidentally in Poe. There was the uh, something to do with uh, Rasmussen when he was kicked out of the tour. It happened here. Uh, with Vinukarov when he was kicked out of the tour. It all happened here. And the most famous of all press conferences with, with Lance, Lance Armstrong back in those days. 
and there was a big confrontation between him and the media. All happened here in post. So lots of uh, interesting history. They also have this new open-air museum for all the Tour de France winners. And Poe decided to include Mr. Armstrong in they built these little totems, these little posts that have the story of all the Tour de France winners. And, and officially, Lance is not a winner of many tour of those seven tours, but here in Poe, he is. So a lot of cycling history in this town. You sound like a fan of Poe. I am no fan of Poe. Maybe it's just because the last two years that we have stayed in Poe, I have, I, I, maybe it was the hotel budget was low or something like that, but I feel like we got to the short end of the stick in Poe. I remember staying in a very sweaty Airbnb uh, with old Andy Hood at Poe uh, last year. I do agree with you, though. That little park that they set up down by the railroad with the um, totems or something like, like monoliths from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey with the various winners of the Tour de France on them. It's cool. Uh, it's definitely a town, like you said, steeped in cycling history. Um, I got to say, my, my most vivid memory of my time at Poe is getting up early to go on a jog, as a lot of cycling journos do sometimes. And getting completely horribly lost to the point where I was going to have to, like, take a cab back to uh, where our hotel was. Poe, quite a confusing little town. Um, well, but there's no Tour de France going on at Poe. What were you going to say there, Hoodie? Well, I was just going to add that it's certainly better than Lourdes. <laughs> yeah, everything's better <laughs> than Lourdes. Just down the road here, our favorite place. Oh, poor Lourdes. Uh, Tour de France, though, not going on in Poe this year. Uh, but the Vuelta España is in, Andy, you just wrapped up Stage 10, the individual time trial. And, you know, the last few days we have been talking about how Stage 10 was going to be this crucial stage because it was going to refocus us on the second half of the Vuelta. Uh, in the first half, all of the climbers were trying to distance Mr. Primoz Roglic because I think they all knew in the back of their heads that yeah, he's such a good time trialist. He was likely to take some time out of them. And they were right. They were <laughs> They were right on because old Roglic, not only did he take time out of the rivals, but he won the stage outright and just, just looked so good and crisp winning the stage, put three minutes into Quintana, uh, two minutes or so into over two minutes into Miguel Angel Lopez, um, really distanced himself from uh, a lot of the heavy hitters in this year's Welta. And like I said, that refocuses us now. On the second half of the race, and the big question is these all-star climbers, Quintana, Lopez, Valverde, maybe Pogachar, can they are they strong enough to attack Mr. Roglic in the mountains and take back that valuable time? So Andy, you were there today, you've been there the last few days. Like what is the scuttlebutt? What is the talk amongst the director sportif, the riders, the journalists? about Roglic and this time trial? Yeah, I think that Roglic pretty much met expectations with his victory today. Uh, most of the people we were talking to down in the pits, a lot of the sport directors and riders, pretty much right there in that two to three minute range. And that's basically right where he came down. Valverde was having a pretty good ride. He kind of faded there at the end. He was kind of keeping limiting the losses to around a minute or so. Then he just kind of bled time in the last 10 Ks. Um, as expected, Roglic now is in the red jersey. It's almost like a replay of what happened at the Giro. Uh, he got you know, at the Giro, he got those two big early time trial wins took quite a commanding lead but we saw in italy the, the the pink jersey kind of unraveled for riglo and he kind of limped into the final stages and held on to to take third 
But in this scenario here at the Welta, it's looking like it might be a little bit different ending. Of course, that is the big question for you, right? You know, can he hang on between now and Madrid? There's still a lot of climbing in this tour, in this Welta. It's been front-loaded. It's been a very hard first week. So that could maybe work against Roglic. He came in uh, fresh, but not with a lot of racing in his legs. So that's the big question. That's going to be the suspense over the next 10 days. Yeah, and of the next 10 stages, five of them are mountain stages, and I believe three of those five are summit finishes. And yeah, you're right. I mean, this is the whole Giro d'Italia question again, right? All over again. You know, is Roglic strong enough to hold it in three-week Grand Tour? And at the Giro, he was not. Uh, he had crashes. He had bad luck. His team was not as strong as it is at this Welta. And I think you could also make an argument that, you know, maybe the second half of a Giro d'Italia is harder than the second half of this Welta. I'm thinking uh, about that uh, Mortirolo day, for example. But, you know, the second half of this Welta is, it's no, uh, no cakewalk. So on Friday, we have the summit finish to Los Machucos, which we are familiar with from, I believe, uh, the 2017, or was it last year's Welta with Chris Froome? Seven, 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 17. 17. Yeah. That was the day when Nibali dropped Froome, and it was this, it's extremely painful, steep, crazy, typical Welta España chaos climb. Um, then on Sunday, we have, I believe, another summit finish to Santuario, Del Acebo, apologies to our Spanish-speaking friends for my terrible Spanish pronunciation. That's um, pretty close. It's all right. Yeah, there you go. Well, <laughs> good on you, Fred. I mean, it's better than when I try to pronounce pronounce French. Um, but so, so there's a couple summit finish days and there's a couple really hard days in the mountains. But I don't know. I mean, is this second half of the Vuelta as difficult as the second half of the Giro, or is it just, you know, the climbs are steep, but not quite as long. What's your assessment of the second half? Yeah, it was interesting. We were talking to Kiel Reinen this morning before his ride, and he was saying that um, every race depends on how hard the riders make it, right? On paper, the Giro is harder. It, it certainly was harder this year than what the last week of this Welta looks like, but it comes at the end of the season. Everyone's tired. Everyone's burned out. Everyone's like at their breaking point. Um, one thing that's different to the Giro from the Welta, the Giro has that kind of unpredictable weather. That nasty weather can be such a factor, especially when when teed up in the dull nights and the and the big mountains of the Giro. But we saw that just two days ago here at the Welta, that hailstorm, that rain, you know, that kind of weather is possible in Spain as well. Um, but there's plenty of terrain to move in this Welta España, both for these climbers and some tricky terrain to make it hard for uh, Roglic. I think Roglic coming into this scenario right now is going to be very different at a couple different levels. Um, talking to his sport director this morning, Addy Engels, before his time trial, and he's saying that Roglic took a lot of confidence out of that Welta, out of that Giro, even though he didn't win it, even though he kind of, you know, some people saw it as a failure. Everyone inside that organization saw the Giro as a big success. It was the first time that Roglic was racing to win a Grand Tour, you have to remember Roglic, a little bit older perhaps, but it's, the Giro was only his fourth Grand Tour ever, and now this is his fifth. And, you know, his progression is quite marked when you think about where he came from. Being a what, Fred? I believe he was a slalom skier. No, no, I got this. It was another uh, Winter Olympic sport. It was uh, figure skating, skate dancing. Um, yeah. Luge. Ski, he was a luger, ski, right? 
ski flying, <laughs> as uh, Roglic called it the other day. So, uh, you know, he took a lot of positive out of that Giro, even though he didn't win it. Just, you know, that was the first podium for, for Roglic, the first podium really for that organization and the Grand Tour you know, since uh, Richard Peluga has gone into uh, Jumbo Visma to re- kind of revamp and rebuild that franchise from really, you know, it almost went bankrupt there in Blanco only five years ago. So it was kind of a big milestone in many ways for Roglic, that team, all the sport directors, all the support riders. So they kind of bring this renewed confidence into the Welta. So I don't know. I don't see, I don't see Roglic kind of struggling as, as much as he did during the Giro. He could, I think you could see a few times Roglic kind of got nervous, maybe some of the pressure. He felt tense. He wasn't used to all the attention. He wasn't used to leading. He perhaps didn't really know how to make, you know, so-called the right uh, decisions, you know, when Carapaz was attacking and remember when he and Nibler were kind of playing cat and mouse and, and Carapaz just rode away with the Giro in May. So I think, you know, if he finds himself in those kinds of situations again in this wealth, I think we'll see a different kind of roguelich. What I really like to see with Roglic just as uh, his aesthetic of watching him as a, as a bike rider is, you know, we saw this in the Giro when he starts to get tired, he starts to push a smaller gear, but really increase his cadence. So, you know, some of these guys were pushing pretty stout gears in the Giro on these steep Italian climbs and Roglic is just spinning, 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 spinning. And, and it's sort of a tell when, you know, the guy doesn't have the leg strength anymore to push a big, mighty gear and he's just having to work the uh, the heart and lungs. But, you know, we've seen that a couple times from him already at this year's Welta. I'm thinking back to stage nine just the other day when, you know, it, it's like, Roglic doesn't have the intense accelerations of a Valverde or even of a Quintana to push a big gear and just dance away from everybody. He has to like, you know, he plays the cadence game. He is zipping back up. He's getting his legs going. Um, I think it's actually a very stylish um, pedaling style and he uses it rather effectively. I mean, on stage nine, as we saw, he was able to limit his losses by throwing it into that uh, that high gear and just kind of you know just pedal 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 and to to follow the guys. So I I, I hope he can do it. I think you know I came into this uh, I came into the Giro really flying high in Roglic because I had seen him at the UAE Tour where he was unquestionably the strongest guy, stronger than Dumoulin, stronger than you know some of the other favorites there. It was the early season, but he also had just like an assassin's attitude where. No quarter was given. He would win stages, win sprints, win uphill stages, and um, he, he he became my my big Giro hope. But um, didn't quite have it in those three weeks. But I don't know. I'm quietly optimistic right now because look, as we look at the GC standings, I mean, it's two minutes, almost two minutes back to Valverde, more than three minutes back to Quintana. So you know, you're looking at a scenario in which Roglic doesn't just have to seed time. I mean, he pretty much he kind of has to crumble in order to uh, lose that much in these stages. And while they are very difficult, um, I don't know. I, I guess I, I, I'm quietly optimistic that Roglic can can keep it together and not just completely explode. Yeah, it's, you're right about pointing out his uh, pedaling style um, because so far in this Giro, he, you've seen him kind of uh, – that's his way of kind of just – 
ticking away and limiting his losses when he might be a little bit off the best of his game. But they pointed out to me at the uh, Jumbo Visma car this morning that Roglic was the fastest on the climb Sunday. We saw that horrific condition. Roglic even crashed. He got knocked off his bike. We saw that video came out after uh, a few hours after the stage on Sunday. It was hailing. It was raining. Roglic got knocked to the ground. But, man, this time he got back up, and he just flew up the uh, to the Endurance Summit on Sunday, only six seconds short of the, of the red jersey on that day so he was really the virtual leader coming into this tour and when you do into this time trial and when you do look at the climbs here in this last part of the Vuelta they are very different than the Giro because they're not quite as long that's one thing about the big long climbs up in the northern part of Italy there some of those climbs are 10 15 20 k's long so if you do get going to the red you can really bleed some minutes whereas if you look at these climbs especially up in Asturias in northern Spain very steep. You're looking at Los Machucos, you know, average grade, 8, 9, 10%. But these climbs are only, in, you know, in quotation marks, only 10, 12 uh, kilometers long. So even if you do get dropped by uh, a guy like Lopez, who will and has promised to attack, and even, you know, Movistar starts uh, attacking Roglic with a one-two punch, you know, he can just kind of ride that steady high-speed cadence tempo. And how much time would you lose even if you had a bad day? You're not going to lose – as much time in these Spanish climbs as you would if you if you're really bleeding time in those longer climbs of the Tour or or the Giro. So that's going to be a, a big def- help in uh, in Roglic's defense of red. And then I think another key factor here: this team is much stronger than uh, what he had at the Giro. You have uh, Robert Haysink, very experienced uh, lieutenant, a lot of uh, Grand Tours in his, his legs. He knows how to manage a race. George Bennett, who has kind of forfeited his own GC possibilities to help uh, Roglic and the team. Then you got the two Americans, Seth Kuss and Neil, Nielsen Palace. His birthday was today uh, on the day of our podcast. Those guys have stepped up bigly. <laughs> and then uh, they've locked, they lost Kawaiswick. And you remember you lost, uh, they lost some time in that first uh, team time trial when they crashed. So it's been a pretty good first 10 days, first half of this Vuelta. I think right now there's no question in my mind that Roglic is in the driver's seat. And I think if he, if he stays upright, I think he, this one, he can win this race because, you know, you, you see Quintana. I don't see Quintana really having the, the spice in his legs to be able to drop a guy like, uh, like Roglic right now. Uh, Valverde, you know, Valverde is one of those guys at this point of his career. He's, he's going to follow the wheels. You know, he's going to be able to stay right there, might win some stages, might get some time bonuses, but he's almost two minutes back. So very hard scenario for him to lose two minutes. So I think the danger man really in this whole scenario is Lopez. He's going to attack. He has been very strong. He's also battled a lot of bad luck at the Giro. So and then you cannot overlook uh, Mr. Tade Pogacar, who was just right behind Nairo overall in GC now. So the podium could very well end up Roglic. Lopez and Pogachar. Yeah, I'm looking at this stage 16. That is this coming Monday's stage. Uh, two Cat 1 climbs, a big old summit finish up to Alto de la Cubia, Cubia which uh, uh, that's a pretty long climb. That's uh, 20 Ks long. And if Lopez or Quintana is going to do something, I could see them trying to do something on that stage. Oh, man, Pogachar. I mean, <laughs> he wins stage 9. He's looking so good, and you just have to wonder what the heck position he'd be in had UAE Team Emirates not totally biffed it in that opening team time trial by crashing on the uh, the, the baby pool that overflowed, or the you know the, the local dude who was washing his car 
and got all the soapy water uh, allegedly all over the road um, because yeah he we, we saw him earlier this year just smoking at the Amgen Tour California and this guy is super legit so uh, we got to keep our eyes on him to see if he can get onto the podium um, hoodie. You know, before we continue talking about the uh, stages ahead, I think we need to shine the magnifying glass a bit on stage nine. This was the short, crazy, bunch of climbs, Andorra stage that finished up to Cortals de Encamp. Um, Pogachar won the stage. Quintana took red on the stage. But there were so many different talking points coming out of this stage from... Uh, what to do in the chance of inclement weather, about the inclusion of gravel. We saw chaos. We saw the video picture break up. Uh, we saw some pretty awesome tactics on the part of Miguel Angel Lopez that seemed to be negated after he crashed. Uh, and then we saw some good old-fashioned angry pants frustration um, from the Movistar team when I believe it was Mark Soler uh, was racing for the stage when and got called back for but it, to, to aid Quintana, and he just uh, threw his arms around everywhere and had kind of a tantrum on the bike. So I don't know. Where do you want to start? Do you want to talk about inclement weather? Do you want to talk about uh, <laughs> Pogachar? Do you want to talk about Soler? I mean, there's so much. I mean, stage nine afterwards, it was like a, like a big meaty steak. You can just uh, sink your teeth into it and chew on it from so many different angles. Maybe we saw to talk with the inclement weather. Why don't you set the stage for us about where you were and what happened when the, when the weather rolled in? Yeah, as, as anybody who lives in the mountains knows, this was just one of those classic late summer afternoon thunder showers. You know, down at the start, down at Andorra La Vela and the, the valley floor, it's about 1,200 meters elevation, sunny weather, hardly even any clouds in the sky. You can kind of see some puffy clouds building up in the higher mountains, but, you know, no real hint that it was going to really, really dump as hard as it did. But as you know, if you live in Colorado or you live in the French Alps, you know that the weather can turn. And that's exactly what happened. A couple of hours later, uh, clouds just everything turned black, and the, and the skies just opened. And it was just, uh, in some ways, quite similar to what happened at the Tour de France in that big stage uh, going to Ting when they, had, they were forced to neutralize that stage, when just so much water and so much hail hammered the peloton, you know, all just all at once. It just came down. Like I said, it was almost, uh, you know, partly cloudy. Clouds were building, and then suddenly it was just un- unleashing of the heavens, and it and it went just extreme uh, conditions of racing, all within a question of minutes. Uh, you know, the riders were coming across the line just just battered by the hail. You know, riders were, uh, you know, stopped like the guys that were behind the GC favorites. They were pulling off the side of the road, you know, finding some cover under the trees. There was one story from one rider. Uh, I can't remember who it was. He was uh, riding with his hand held up, trying to have someone to give him a uh, an umbrella, and they kept and they and they kept thinking he was. He was they kept giving him a high five, like ah, Vega, Vega. He, he was trying to get an umbrella to cover himself up from the. Uh, in effect, we uh, we talked to Kill uh, Kill Ryden. Uh, let's jump to Kill and hear hear what he had to say about that that adventure on Sunday in Andorra. We are Kiel Rennen, man. How uh, how was the uh, 
recovery from Sunday has quite the extreme stage in more ways than one. Yeah, uh, definitely some gnarly conditions. Uh, it's happened before in, in Andorra, so I guess I'm not surprised, but uh, we had a day to have some respite and the sun's out again, so we'll, uh, we'll take it. It's all part of bike racing, racing through whatever conditions the mother nature throws at you. Yeah, there's certainly a larger debate to be had, I guess, about what's uh, reasonable and unreasonable conditions to race in. Uh, and and every time something like that happens, opinions vary. Some guys in the race want it uh, called off or changed. Other guys are happy to race in it. So it's there, there should be uh, always discussion about it, but uh, it's really hard to draw conclusions. Now, where were you? You were in a group behind the favorites. Uh, what kind of conditions did you face on that last climb did the hail hit you oh yeah definitely uh definitely hailed on and i think we lucked out uh everybody was past the descent off of gaina by the time the storms hit so that was probably the most treacherous part of the the course in the wet or had it been wet and in the end most of the the bad weather came on uh, the last hills and the dirt section yeah how was that in the pre-sketch and some of the clips we've seen uh, some crashes just too extreme for those conditions or what yeah again opinions vary like for me that was you love that stuff. Uh, yeah that was fine that was no big deal i don't have a problem with that but i you know i also wasn't going for the stage win so um maybe my opinions are less valid in that particular uh, part of the course i think like i said debate's healthy it's hard to draw conclusions though because the opinions vary there was some chaos at the summit i think you wrote down didn't you and jumped on the bus as fast as you could some guys were waiting for that cable car coming down how was it uh, just getting back into france that whole evening yeah, uh, apparently our adventure was less harrowing than some of the other teams. I, I think there were some late arrivals. We, For us, it was relatively smooth. Uh, I, I didn't take the gondola, which I was a little disappointed to not take in the views and, and kind of appreciate that moment since we climbed all the way up there. But on the other hand, uh, it sounds like it was quite a wait. I, I'm, I'm glad I took the decision I did in the end, even though it was not a warm descent. And you guys got back over here to France pretty fast then. Some of the teams took hours to get back. Yeah, I think we got in, you know, just before midnight. And in the Vuelta, that's reasonable since everything starts pretty late. Uh, some of the teams I heard got in a lot, a lot later than that. And, the you know, the thing I always try and keep in mind when uh, there's sort of circumstances like that outside your control is that everybody's in the same boat. Uh, all the teams at some point or another are going to have an extra long day. And even though uh, you know, going to bed super late uh, hurts the next morning. It's, you know, everyone's going to do it. How has this welter been this first half? Everyone's saying, some people are saying it's the, one of the hardest welters in a few years. How's it been for you? Yeah, I don't remember any easy ones. <laughs> uh, it, it does seem like it's been particularly intense in the first week. The, the GC battle obviously opened up really early on. In the end, you know, you can analyze the parkours endlessly. It depends on how we race it. And if if the first week was really as hard as uh, everyone says it was, then we'll pay the price in the in the third week and guys will slow down a bit. And uh, I, I don't know that it's always a linear equation. I don't think that when you, when you get a super hard parkour, you automatically get a, a super hard race. 
sometimes when guys are fearful of the the climbs ahead they'll hold back a little bit and um, you can see the race get raced differently than it would otherwise so you're here obviously uh, trying to help uh, in the sprints do you guys see some chances in that final week because I mean week two doesn't look like there's many chances for sprints <laughs> we can hope so right uh, yeah, it's a lot of fighting to get to the sprint days of the Vuelta, and there are no flat days. So uh, when I always get mad when I read the report and they talk about a bunch finish, it, you know, it never mentions the fact that it broke up three times on the climb and we had to chase back and uh, suffer for a lot of uh, a lot of the day just to make it to that sprint finish. And uh, I, I think, yeah, we brought a team definitely to with an eye on those days, and there are more of them coming than than there have. You know, we've only had two really that were uh, sprint sprint days, and we have more than that ahead. So that kind of this harder mountain stage is all about trying to manage your forces and to save your legs and try to find a group to, to finish the time cut and skip through it. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of tactic to it. I, I mean, it is not a steady effort like you would think, and it's uh, there are definitely moments where it's every man for himself, and and then moments where everyone's kind of looking out for each other, and we're regrouping and trying to, to organize. Uh, without bodies, you know, you won't make the time cut. So it's really important to. Uh, be well organized, but there are definitely moments where you're going as hard as you can, and that's your only choice. Is there a kind of a leader of the Gruppetto these days, or back in the old days, there was always like a kind of a road captain organized the Gruppetto at the tour? Is that still happening in a race like that? Yeah, I, I try, but I don't have the clout for that. <laughs> no one listens to me. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I would be sort of. Uh, remissed if I didn't. I don't know. I there's definitely part of me that wishes that there was was more of a, a you know Gruppetto boss in the peloton to uh, call that moment, and especially in a race with the Volta, like the Volta, when it's so hard and there are few sprinters and few teams that are sort of designed around those sprinters, it can be tough to you know find that group, and uh, I think as we've seen modern cycling, you know progress the talent pool grow uh the margins you know between the top guys and the, and the bottom guys just shrunk and when those margins get too small uh it, it changes the dynamic a bit certainly and and i think we've uh there's there's definitely no holding back anymore and the the sort of less maybe I see less of like the selective targeting of, of certain types of qualities um, there's just more of a general go hard every day just go hard every and day. <laughs> I yeah I I attribute that to the talent pool getting deeper I guess what's your take on these young guys that are doing so well on the Peloton you know Remco 19 wins a world tour in San Sebastian Pogacar on Sunday riding away yeah. from what, what do you what, what do you think when you see these guys 20 year old doing that I think I could you know, I'm not far from being able to be their dad. <laughs> That's what I think, which is kind of a scary thought. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's inspiring, um, you know, to see the young guys come in and immediately uh, sort of rise through the ranks. Um, that, that sort of, that hierarchy that's really hard to break into or used to be really hard to break into when I was a young rider has, has dissipated some 
and I think that's a good thing. You know, there's based on pure talent or is something else happening. Uh, I think there are countries that are doing a better job of you know finding talent, you know, developing it, and and spending time, money, resources on that. And uh, the but I, but I also attribute to the the sort of the hierarchy. So like the younger riders are are having more freedom uh, from their teams in the peloton to to go for results, whereas in the past you had to earn that privilege uh, through time uh, I mean being a domestique yeah and you know you waited for your leader whether you were better than him or not and we've seen some of those sort of like unwritten rules disappear and uh, like I said I think that's that's a healthy thing it's a bit demoralizing to see guys you know a fraction of your age up the road uh, smashing it and you're hanging on for dear life but uh, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to see young guys performing really well in the, in the sport I think these transfers are too far I've done longer ones where uh, Croatia yeah yeah for, yeah. for a grand tour three weeks so they've programmed these, these stages better because we saw that stage before in Dora, it was a large leap to get up there then then Dora, then to France and then back into Spain yeah I of course you know the transfers take a toll but I also would refrain from being too much of an armchair critic because it's it's easy for me to sit back and say oh you know we could have stayed halfway between here and you know the next place but that's not the way it works. The race organizer has to build a race around the, the cities that want to participate and, and um, you know, these cities pay money to, to be part of the show and uh, they deserve to to have the starts and finishes. So uh, it's all about striking a balance and I think that's not an easy balance for um, a race organizer to find all the time. And the I think, again, the, the best thing is, you know, an open discussion, a healthy debate around, you know, where those lines should be drawn and um, doing that sort of out of frustration or uh, isn't productive. So uh, I think having an open debate is, is definitely the first place to, to start. I, like I said, I've done races with, with longer transfers, so I didn't think it's been particularly um, detrimental to, to our performance so far. God, that sounds miserable. Yeah, I saw Ben King tweet something after that. Who He basically said that, like, Hale was hitting him in the collarbone and on the hands and on the tops of the legs, and it was really painful. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a hailstorm while you're riding your bike, but, yeah, I mean, it sucks. It's like so much of you is exposed, and these little hailstones start hitting you like BBs. And uh, I have a distinct memory of riding my bike along Highway 1 in uh, Northern California, well, uh, around like Gualala Sea Camp, or uh, I forget what it was, Point Arena. And I got stuck in this hailstorm, and it hurt. I mean, like it felt like someone was throwing rocks at me. And I just, I eventually got off my bike and hit under a tree. And when you're racing the Vuelta España, you can't do that. So I have, <laughs> I, I, you know, I have no doubt that some of these guys were asking fans for umbrellas or jackets or whatever. Um, so the question is about this hoodie is that, and, and I saw some of these questions posited online afterwards, which was, well, why didn't they enact the extreme weather protocol and neutralize the stage and call it off and send these guys undercover? Why didn't the race commissars or the race jury step in at this moment 
to stop things. Um, so I'll pose that question to you. Why didn't they stop the stage? Uh, there were a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it was it was such an intense downpour, and it was also very localized because what you saw right at the front of the race, uh, the groups behind weren't getting rained on nearly as much, and at the summit, it wasn't quite raining as hard. So it was kind of something that was so fluid, moving so fast, and that even when you know they decided to, you know, there there was a discussion of do we stop the race? What do we do? They decided because. Other than that gravel section, there was that gravel section was kind of, you could see in some of that video, you know, it wasn't flat. I mean, it wasn't downhill, but it was kind of a false flat downhill. And guys were carrying some speed across that gravel section, huge puddles of water. We saw Roglic and Lopez crash on that sector. Uh, guys were saying, you know, that's a little bit too extreme. You know, you don't need to include gravel in a high mountain stage. Like, okay, you know, Strade Bianchi is a great race or even the, uh, the Finestre climb in, uh, in, in the Giro, having him on the uphill, that's one thing. But this was kind of a flat, flat downhill. Guys were carrying speed. People were saying that's a little bit uh, over the top, especially in inclement weather. But the other big question was, what do you do with all these people if you do neutralize the race? It wasn't like the there was any place for these guys to go to because all the team auxiliaries, all the uh, Swannies, they were all at the finish line. And it was – Besides that little one gravel sector, which is about, I think, four Ks, you know, it was an uphill uh, climbing part of the race. So they weren't having to descend. They weren't having to really, you know, go too much further in the race. And at the finish line, that's where they had, everyone had the cars, the vehicles, the jackets, you know, the food, the, everything, the drinks, everything that they needed. So if they just stopped the race in the middle of uh, the course like that, no one would have anywhere else to go. So, you know, it's one of those decisions, man. It's like racing isn't held on open roads. This is going to happen. You know, they have the contingencies in place, but it's, it's a pretty thin line sometimes. Do you stop the race? Then you neutralize the, the competition. You know, we saw how the Tour de France was really marked this year by what happened in those last two stages in the Alps. I mean, you know, I don't know if you put an asterisk next to uh, Bernal's win of the Tour, but that race ended very differently than you know had the weather cooperated with with the, with the race so the jury had to make the call they made the call to finish the race and in fact by the time the riders came to the finish line it had almost stopped raining so you know it's sometimes with the weather it's such a hard it's easy when you're sitting on the couch watching on tv it's like oh you have to cancel the stage but there's so many other factors to go into those decisions yeah i think that this these two incidents bookend um, or are they highlight just how difficult it is to try and make those decisions? I mean, everyone wants to keep racing. No one wants to neutralize the race. You're going to upset the teams, the riders. There's always going to be second guessing no matter what decision you make. And so here you are, race jury in the moment, and there's clouds overhead, and maybe it's raining or hailing or whatever, and you have to make, a, you know, make the right call. And um, I think it's, I think it's just one of these situations where like. You kind of have to have faith that the people making the right call in the moment are just informed as much as possible, and then they're just they're the they're the ones that are going to have to make the decision. So in the tour, I think they obviously made the right call because of the landslide, and you know we saw those overhead images of this section of road submerged by gravel and ice. But in the Welta, you know, I don't know, maybe that one is a, just a little bit closer to gray area. 
But again, you know, we saw some complaining online. We saw some complaining online about the inclusion of the dirt sector because that final climb did, like you said, have about 4K of dirt. And, you know, if it's dry conditions, it's probably no problem. But in rain and hail, it becomes slippery. I think we saw Miguel Angel Lopez crash on that sector. We also saw Primoz Roglic crash on that sector as he uh, came around a turn and there was a uh, UCI motorbike that had stopped in the middle of the road and it sent him tumbling. Luckily, he was okay. Otherwise, I mean, think about that. That would talk about just uh, just a terrible kerfuffle if uh, if it had gone worse. But, you know, Richard Pluga of Team Yumbo Visma, team owner, I mean, he took to Twitter afterward. Dear UCI Cycling, asked this many times, could you prevent dangerous situations like gravel sections and road races? It is 2019. There are paved roads nowadays. Ride the future, not the past. Apparently, no one has told Richard Pluga that gravel is actually the future of cycling and that the entire <laughs> industry is just gaga about gravel but i mean i guess i see where he's coming from you know i mean these gravel roads they throw them in to spice up the action and to get good photography and to add to the challenge but uh, i don't know i mean what were the riders talking at all about whether or not that gravel sector crossed the line that separates um you know fun and innovative from dangerous and stupid yeah, I think the general consensus really was in the dry, it would have been fine. Uh, as, as you just heard uh, Keel say, you know, some people hate gravel. In his case, he loves it. So, you know, it, it's just there's so many voices in this peloton, so many different interests, so many different people have their own ideas of what it should be. And it's worth pointing out, actually, that gravel sector that they raced, it was kind of a, uh, a road that linked two valleys. So what they did in that stage is they brought the, the course above the lower valley road into this kind of spur roads that kind of went up these different valleys. And so they kind of linked up two valley roads with that gravel sector so that allowed them to kind of link up to the final climb up to end camp. Because otherwise, they would have just had to go on down that flat valley road back to the base of that climb. And that's all quite easy stuff. That's, that's the main road through Andorra would not have had nearly as interesting uh, uh, finale in terms of racing and just how interesting that stage uh, played out because there really would not have been really any move to room to move to or even to attack. So they brought it up into that ridge and they hit two or three rated climbs going across that higher ridge and they kind of linked together with three valleys that come down from the higher mountains there in Andorra and they link that, they kind of bridge this valley road to another one across that gravel sector to hit that final punch up to to uh, the in cap so that's why that was in that stage and and uh, you know i you know you gotta you gotta give it to the organizer there too I mean, they're trying to make things different try every year the pressure's on the organization to think of these new stages bring the bring the the summits you know develop these these undiscovered roads and and keep it interesting for the fans keep it interesting for the riders so i think the only thing the riders really asked for is to make sure it's safe I thought it was excellent. I thought that stage, I mean, okay, the inclement weather throws a curveball at them, but otherwise the route, the climbs, I thought it was I thought it was thrilling. I mean, short stage under 100k's, three giant climbs, and the last climb is basically th- comprised of three climbs. And you looked at the profile and it was just this steep stair-steppy three-step climb all the way to the finish with yet yeah, like you said these little link-ups in between. Um I I Kudos to them. I thought it was uh, truly excellent. So last uh, talking point from this stage nine to end camp was the scenario that I mentioned beforehand. Uh, you know, Mark Soler, 
from Movistar. He is their young, up-and-coming, future GC threat. He's like sort of the darling of Spain, the next contador. And in the scenario, he gets off the front and he is charging towards potential stage win. I think he had 20, 30-second gap on um, the the riders coming up behind him. And it just so happened the riders coming up behind him were his teammate Nairo Quintana as well as Tade Pogachar. And uh, at some point, it's like 4K to go, maybe 3K to go, um, someone ra- radios to him from Movistar that says, you need to sit up and wait for Quintana and pace Quintana to the finish line because Quintana wants to take red. And uh, he, he was pretty pissed about that. Solaire took his hands off the bars and waved him around. TV motorbikes were there to catch the action. I mean, he was a good soldier. He could have just like taken his earpiece out and been like, oh, you know, the radio is dead. But he fell back to help Quintana. Quintana could not follow Pogachar. I guess the question will always be whether or not Soler could have gone with Pogachar. But uh, Quintana was dropped by Pogachar. Those two rode in. Pogachar takes the stage win. No stage win for you, Mark Soler. Sorry, but you get to be a good teammate. And afterwards, uh, you know, I mean, it, everybody saw this take place and it was a kerfuffle. And I guess Marca, which is the big Spanish sports daily, talked to Soler and talk to everyone, including Pablo Lastras, who's the director sportif and a, uh, you know, a, a longtime Spanish cycling hero. And he chided Soler and he, he hearkened up images of the great eras of Spanish cycling, trying to make some comparisons to uh, Pedro Delgado and Miguel Indurain. Here's his quote. It's good to have character, but he has to start listening and maturing. If we want to make him a leader, he has to first be a domestique. If not, play a tutorial and let him see what Miguel Indurain did for Perico, for Pedro Delgado, and then what Perico did for Miguel. These guys lack understanding of cycling history. So he totally played the kids these days card. Ah, kids these days. They don't know what it was like to be Indurain. (laughs) <laughs> bah, these millennials they don't know anything <laughs> lousy millennials so who do you, first of all i mean what has the scuttlebutt been in spain with uh, the spanish team um riding kind of goofily in this scenario the other i guess the other weird component was that uh, valverde was attacking up from behind i mean it was just like the kind of the typical thing we see all, the, all over the place with movie star where there's like there's like five different strategies going on in a stage and not all of them seem to be aligned. What are people talking about with this team? Yeah, with Movistar, there's always, there's always uh, a lot of uh, uh, people, I think, sitting at home going, oh, why are they doing that? You know, why is Movistar doing this? You know, why, don't they, why don't they do this? Uh, a lot of times, the most obvious thing that appears Movistar should do, they don't do. And that's what makes them uh, quite interesting. Because, you know, it all kind of comes down to this, uh, you know, the core of that team. It's, it's, you can kind of compare it to some of the other big teams that have, you know, even maybe one or two big GC riders in, into the same house. You know, you look at Team Sky, you know, the, the Ineos. You know, they've done a pretty good job. You know, they didn't have this problem so much when it was just Froome was the main guy. But even the last couple of years now, you know, had Garrett Thomas got a tour win. Uh, you know, Bernal got his win this year. Froome's coming back next year. So, you know, certain teams can kind of handle these dynamics a little bit better than Movistar has been able to do. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, internal, a lot of whispering going on about what, what's really happening behind closed doors at, at Movistar. You know, a lot of uh, people grumbling that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people happy inside the organization with how Quintana has performed the last couple of years and, and how he's been a teammate. Some accuse him of not kind of paying back the favors 
in different scenarios when he could have helped his teammates and he simply just wrote for himself all the time. So uh, some of these back layers were kind of built into that what happened, uh, you know, in that stage on Sunday, you know, Solaire was in a, you know, it probably, the, like he said, it was the first time he was ever in that scenario and he really wanted, he thought he had a chance to win the stage and then boom, here it is over the, over the radio. You got to sit up and you got to help Nairo Quintana, who, by the way, is leaving the team in about a month anyway. So Solaire probably thought at the minute, you know, why am I going to help this guy? You know, get to Jersey for 10 seconds and we know we're going to lose. He's going to lose it tomorrow, the next day against Roglic. But that's not how you race. You got to race as a team. You got to follow the team orders. And I know, uh, they all had a big sit down with Solaire. He came out yesterday at the press conference, uh, before the training ride and apologized publicly to, uh, to Nairo and to La Verde and to his team and to, uh, Spain. He apologized for his to his uh, to his. Did he apologize to you, hoodie. He did not apologize to me. You know, someone should apologize to journalists. You know, having a ten o'clock, uh, ten a.m. press conference uh, <laughs> after a five-hour overnight transfer. Someone should, should apologize about that. But it's uh, you know, Solaire, a strong character. You know, you don't want to you don't want to tamp down that character too much. And I think Solaire got a bit of a revenge today. He, he just hammered the time trial. He was he was tops uh, on Movistar today. I think he was top ten in the time trial. So you know, Movistar needs Solaire next season. You know, Nairo's gone, uh, Carapaz is gone, Landa is gone. So all of that drama that they had inside that bus will be gone with those guys. It's going to be Valverde who will be forty next year. You know, he is. You can still count on him for some stage wins and some solid performances, but the future is going to be with guys like Solaire and Enrique Moss, some of these other younger guys they have coming up. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's bike racing. That's why we love it. It's all just out there, raw emotions, you know, everyone just slogging themselves. You know, Valverde really struggled sun, Sunday. He got hypothermic. He was having a really hard time even just following Roglic. You know, uh, Lopez was on the march. He crashed. Took the wind out of his sails. He ended up losing time. But he's still in the fight. The wealth is still wide open. We'll see if Roglic can hang on and, and finish it off, like you said, like an assassin. And just, uh, you know, ride with that icy fortitude and just finish off this Welta. But it's not going to be easy for him. I think that uh, this last half of this Welta is going to be a lot harder than people think. I think that Movistar will undoubtedly solve all of its problems when Nairo Quintana, uh, Miguel Landa, and others leave. And it'll just be smooth sailing after that, and everyone will get along, and there'll be no more team uh, polemicas for you to report on, Hoodie, that uh, next year everything will just be – it'll just be great, you know, all for one, one for all. That's right, but they won't be winning any races. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you said, uh, Mr. Hood, we have a thrilling second week of the Vuelta España going on. A couple of really key days, summit finishes, big mountain stages. Can Roglic hold on when we uh, catch up a week from now? Uh, we're going to be setting the stage for the final week of the Vuelta and some more fireworks. Not as many as we've seen in third weeks of the Vuelta the past, but uh, still, I think it's going to be pretty good. So, Hoodie, you caught up with Ben King uh, the other day for a long chat to uh, talk about this year's Welta, but to also catch up with Ben to see what the impact that those two Welta España stage wins from last year had on his career. I talked to them earlier this year a bit about it, too. Sounds like he um, he said that these uh, victories had sort of positive and negative impact on his 2019 campaign. 
uh, maybe leading to a little bit of uh, of burnout is what uh, you said he, he he told you. Well, not burnout so much, but I think more he, he was saying overtraining. Uh, he kind of yeah elevated his goals a little bit and uh, realized he kind of ran into a wall just in his own personal limitations. Some interesting stuff. Let's hear what Ben had to say. All right, and I think we're going to go ahead and fade out with the Ben interview. So we will catch up with you a week from now, Andy Hood. Have a good time out there in Spain with the Vuelta. All right. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Here we are with Ben King. I think it's stage seven. Do you guys know, do you guys follow the stages by numbers and locations and, uh, or is it just day by day? No, we, we follow the stages for sure. That's how we keep track of the time. I have no idea what day of the week it is or what the date is, but um, yeah, I know it's stage seven, so one week done. One week done and uh, we've seen you try to get into some breakaways, Ben, but it seems like you might have a target in your back this year. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's so much about the target on the back. Yesterday was very difficult to get in a breakaway. Um, but, yeah, we'll keep trying. Yeah. I mean, uh, this this Welta, every Welta is a little bit different. Um, this year is kind of a front-heavy Welta, isn't it? I mean, this, this first week has just been brutal already out of the gate. Yeah, I think a lot of the main GC days come in the first two weeks. So, um, I mean, especially... Before the rest day, we have the Andorra stage, which they usually save for the last week. Um, it's a lot of climbing and a short stage, so um, it's one with a lot of fireworks. And uh, I think today is going to be more of the same. I think it's a pretty tricky day. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny to see Lopez trying to give the jersey away uh, and then keeps getting it back. Yeah, he's kind of a hot potato. Maybe he doesn't want it, but... Yeah, I don't think they want the responsibility, but I, you know, by the end of today, I see him back in a jersey, so it'll be interesting. Have you uh, done this climb before, Mas de la Costa? I've done this climb two times, yeah, it's miserable. Yeah. It's, it's just a wall, right? Yeah, it's one of those climbs that's, like, so steep they couldn't lay asphalt down. They just paved it with big concrete slabs, which makes it even hotter, and you're not moving, and it's just, like, well, you just feel like you're melting into it. It's probably today, would be faster to get off and run. Is today a breakaway day, or is it going to be the GC guys throwing down, or probably both? Uh, I think it depends how Bahrain wants to control the race. I think they want to give themselves a chance to try to defend the jersey. I think it will be difficult for Tunes, but I don't think they'll be interested in catching the break back. I think for the break to make it, they're going to need to have... Um, about five minutes when they hit the climb 30k to go because that's a, already a difficult climb and uh, the road gets really narrow and twisty after that so teams are going to be fighting to be in a good position and that's going to bring the speed up and take some time away from the breakaway and then yeah at the start of the Mas de la Cosa, I could see them needing two three minutes at you know minimum with good climbers in the break to have a chance to succeed. Now it's all those kinds of factors that go into reading every stage isn't it in terms of trying to figure out the calculus of the break's going to go, who do you have in the break, how, who has the leader's jersey, all those factors come into play. It's like a chess match every day. Yeah, absolutely, and it's definitely things that you have to consider, but at the end of the day, if you're not in the breakaway, you know, sometimes some once it's gone and you see the break's going to make it and you're not there, then then it's too late to do anything about it. So the best, you know, the best thing you can do is just keep rolling the dice and trying to be up there and see how it plays out behind. Now, uh, you know, looking back last year, Ben, you know, such a great Welta. Um, 
is it, like in cycling, yesterday's results don't really count for much, right? You come into this welt of clean slate, trying to get in the brakes, trying to win stages. What happened last year, it's good for the history books. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that I'll, I'll have with me for the rest of my life. Um, but in cycling, in terms of like the business side of it, the career side, you're really only as good as your last race. So um, that's a that's a difficult thing when you're always having to judge yourself based on your last race, and uh, you know keep focused on improving and trying to reach your full potential. So um, I, you know I've worked really hard this season, but the results haven't been like last year. Yeah, it must be frustrating sometimes, right? Sometimes you feel great, the results don't come. Is there ever a moment when you don't feel great and you get a good result, perhaps more than your legs might uh, have uh, realized? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, even like last year, it's not like I was on my the best form of my career. It was just um, I was in good shape, obviously, and uh, tactically the things played into my hand. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it must have meant a lot. I mean, we talked about how much that meant to you just personally and professionally. Uh, did you reflect on the success over this past winter? I mean, what did it mean to you looking back on it? Yeah, and I think it led me to make a few mistakes over the winter, just um, kind of feeling like I'd made a breakthrough was a little bit um, unbreakable, and I, I think I trained a little bit too much over the winter and was playing catch-up most of the spring, um, trying to recover and... Um, yeah, paid a little bit of a price for that. So I think I, you know, heading into next year, I'll know what to do when I get a chance to hit the reset button. Interesting. What? So just went a little bit too too hard in training, kind of raising the ambitions a little bit, or, or what exactly happened? Yeah, I think um, you know I saw what I did last year and believed I could bump up an even higher level and um, be more consistent on a you know even in overall classification hunt. Um, in the end, it turned out to be kind of a mistake just to kind of stray from what I'd been doing, which was working for me. So um, trying to incorporate more of that type of work into what I've done uh, since California, and it seems to be working. Interesting. And how was the Tour de France for you? We saw you out there in the break a few days, but the Tour is the Tour, and that's uh, just a whole other animal, isn't it? Yeah, the Tour is the Tour. Um, yeah, it's a different beast. It's, you can't compare it to other Grand Tours, you know, I think uh, physically the Vuelta's been harder, um, but just overall the Tour feels harder, just there's so much extra stress and pressure and um, I think the difference is that maybe there are more relaxed moments during the Tour, but when it goes, it goes faster than any other race in the world. Is that because it's the level of the entire peloton is perhaps just higher at that race and everyone's pretty much 100% at the Tour de France? Yeah, I mean, the level is high here as well. I'm not, I think it's just uh, the way it's raced. You know, when it is a little bit slower throughout the day, it's just more controlled. Um, and then when it comes into the finish, when every team knows that they need to be at the front, they're, you know, it's sometimes you watch it on TV and you see the guys riding on the front and you think it looks easy, but they're actually pushing 450, 500 watts, just, you know, sitting there lined out across the road, every team. And uh, but then we've often heard that the Welta is physically perhaps the hardest race, hardest Grand Tour of the year. Or how does how is the few stack up comparing the three Grand Tours? Where does the, where does the Welta come in? It just depends on the year, I think. I mean, if you take a day like yesterday, where you know an uphill start, um, there aren't many days in cycling that are harder than that. 
just right off the gut, it's like full blast. Yeah, yeah. When when the race starts and it takes a long time for the breakaway to go, and there are groups spread out all over the road, and you know the whole peloton's not back together for 100 kilometers, and you know when 25 guys never make it back onto the group, they do the whole race alone. Like that just. That's psycho. That's hard. <laughs> we saw the nasty crash. Were you involved in that? Were you close to that? No, I was. No, I was safely on the other side of the road. I, I like to leave a little bit of a cushion on the downhills just so I have time to react to that kind of thing. Because I see guys taking risks that just aren't worth it. And I think you know that's the kind of thing that that happens. So yeah, I leave that little safety cushion and so try not to crash. Find a little sweet spot there. Just kind of. Uh yeah, so yeah, somewhere, somewhere, yeah, somewhere close it. enough to the front where everyone's kind of happy to be where they are, and they're not trying to dive bomb underneath you to to get closer to the front. They just kind of settle in where they are, and they respect the little cushion that you leave, so you can, you know, you don't have to break as hard into the corners. You can take some more speed through them, and then if something happens ahead, you have time to react to it. And how are the roads in Spain in general compared to you know the Giro or the Tour? You know, up in the north of Europe now, it's getting to be so dangerous with so many roundabouts, all that traffic furniture. Is the is the is the welt a little bit different? in that regard yeah you get to know the characteristics of the roads in different countries you know i mean I, people say the giro has insane roads but since i live in train in italy like i'm kind of used to the where they decide to put the random concrete fixtures and what types of potholes and stuff they're going to be um you know the welta has put us on some pretty narrow dilapidated roads in this edition so far, but um, it's definitely different from what you might find in France, where it's a little bit more foreign to me, not uh, not training or racing as much in France, then you see these, you know, like, why would they put that pole right there? Um, so, yeah, when, after a few days, you kind of get used to, like, knowing whether or not there's going to be a pole and you know all the riders in the peloton point that kind of stuff out so especially after a few days when things calm down a little bit uh, we're also just seeing uh, this kind of new generation of young riders coming in guys like uh, Remco and uh, Pogacar at this Welta this Generation Z are you amazed at these kids that are still almost teenagers performing so well at the World Tour? It's very impressive um, you know a few years ago people were saying the same thing about Quintana so it's uh it's awesome. I think it's good for the sport that um, you can see how the science and technology is developing. Um, yeah, they're very competitive and it's going to ensure that the sport remains competitive and interesting, yeah. you know, for, for years. Makes it hard for you guys. Yeah, now that I'm now that I'm some old geezer. Yeah, right. um, no, I think it's it's good. I'll just wrap it up here. Uh, after the welter, are you doing the Italian races? Or are you maybe heading to the world? Uh, this should be my last race of the season. Okay. Yep. All right. So, yeah. Good luck. Thank Appreciate you. It.